delightful to uh, to be here at um, Spirit Rock and to be able to conduct this um, this uh, monastic retreat. Um, they've had many retreats here so far. Uh, they opened up in uh, early July for this this facility. And um, I, as I said, I've been involved in a few of the retreats that have been done so far: a family retreat and a weekend and various other uh, events <laughs> held here. But um, the uh, the Spirit Rock staff were very uh, and other teachers were very keen that um, in this first year of of um, usage of the of this new center, as it uh, gets going, they really wanted to have the presence of the monastic tradition and, and uh, these kind of style of teachings um, brought forth, uh, along with the, the more familiar um, patterns of teachings from the, the uh, lay teachers, the Vipassana teachers. So that uh, this is the first of these retreats. Next spring also Ajahn Sumedha will be here uh, leading a, a 10-day retreat also. I suspect the hall will be a little bit fuller <laughs> when, uh, when he's here. But um, I thought it might be helpful to um, to talk a little bit about um, what the uh, uh, the monastic style of practice is about, how monasteries function, and so forth. Some of you are very familiar; have done retreats with us before, have stayed up at the at uh, our monastery in Mendocino or, or in other monasteries in in uh, Thailand or Sri Lanka or Britain, other places. But I, I know that many of you are very unfamiliar um, with uh, this approach, and um, so I thought it might be helpful to uh, to give a bit of background. Also, since uh, we um, we build this retreat as uh, ten days in the monastic life, I don't know if a few of you thought maybe you were going to be handed a razor and a set of robes when you signed in, but uh, rest assured. And uh, the reason why I say that, actually, is, is not entirely just uh, uh, trying to be humorous, but it, it's very common for, for people not to understand at all how monasteries function in the Buddhist world, particularly in the southern Buddhist countries. Um, and that there's a, a kind of um, view uh, that exists within in the West, uh, a kind of half-conscious idea of a monastery being this um, little spiritual enclave where when you want to forget the world, you go and, and lock yourself into this little cloister. Um, you shut yourself away. Uh, you, you change your appearance. You, you take off your hair or you, you cover it up and you, you put on robes and, and you are then, you've left the world, quote-unquote, and uh, and all its cruelties behind, and uh, you you live in this little this little um, sanctified space, and uh, and nothing nasty touches you again, <laughs> and you uh, and you spend your days uh, pottering about, getting more and more holy until, as uh, it was said in one book, until you uh, deliquesce softly into nibbana. <laughs> <laughs> Riding on, and of course, all monks and nuns ride around on little purple clouds and just sort of um, smile serenely to each other as we as we glide by <laughs> in our in our seamlessly um, devout and um, holy way. Um, you can tell that this is this is obviously a joke. <laughs> that um, the uh, and the way that monasteries function, uh, particularly in the, in the Buddhist world is uh, far, far from the idea of a, uh, uh, a spiritual enclave. Now, within the Christian tradition, uh, in particular, uh, there are, that style of enclosure is a particular form of spiritual practice. And, um, and it, anyway, if that's used skillfully and wisely, then of course it can too bring great um, benefits. But within the Buddhist world, that's uh, that's not the the the, the point or structure or, or or manner of functioning of a of a monastery. Within Buddhist countries, uh, the the and Buddhist tradition, the monastery is everybody's place. 
So it's not like, that's why, you know, for ten, ten days in the monastic life doesn't mean taking your hair off and, and putting on robes. It means, you know, you with all of your, um, your, uh, your hair and your moustaches and your colored blankets and your, uh, and your ordinary um, uh, ways and clothing come and stay in the monastery uh, for, uh, for a few days because the monastery is everybody's place. So it functions as a, a kind of a cross between a, a, you know, a commune of, of uh, particularly committed um, spiritual seekers, um, a, a community center, um, uh, family counseling <laughs> uh, center, uh, a meeting place, uh, often in in uh, in in many um, of the Buddhist cultures, the monastery is like the um, the town hall. It's like where you have your village meetings, your town meetings, where all the kind of important meeting, all important affairs get discussed, where where community decisions get made. So it's it's like the, the actually the spiritual heart of the community. It's by f- by by no means a little um, separate group of people trying to live away and apart from everyone else um, it's it's a uh, like a spiritual watering hole spiritual resource uh, for everyone well what a monastery is though um, even though it is for everyone what it tries to do is to sustain a particular kind of environment an environment like a, a garden which is uh, provides the optimum conditions for spiritual growth and nourishment for, for people. So that if you want to take part, uh, if you want to partake of that, that nourishment, then it's there for you to come and, 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 uh, and help yourself to. If you don't want to, then that's fine. You don't have to. But to, uh, to say that the nourishment is there, that the environment is there. So that the, uh, a monastery is a place where you have, say, a community of, of people who are committed to this particular pattern of training, but they might have been there for um, 10 years, 20 years, 5 years, a year, 6 months, a week. Um, and that it's very common for people to, to take a temporary ordination, just as a nun or as a monk or as a novice, um, for a short period of time, as little as a week or a couple of weeks, uh, a month. And so that during that time, then you would be part of the, the resident community and you would live according to that pattern of life. And then those who, who are, say, formally committed to, say, monastic training, again, even if it's for a short period of time, then your job is to, to sustain that, that uh, kind of standard or tenor of, of practice, a kind of um, uh, commitment on a daily basis to, to uh, live as fully as you can according to the monastic rule, to give your heart to the, to the uh, spiritual training as much as possible. And then the effect of uh, that resident community is to help create uh, a zone of safety so that within, a, a mon- within the grounds and, and endurance of a, of a monastery, then you know nobody's going to be um, trying to hurt you no one's going to try and steal anything from you. No one's going to be making eyes at you. No one's going to be um, uh, lying to you or, or using kind of harsh language or nobody's going to be gossiping with you. Um, so that it's a place of complete safety where you can trust everyone else who's there. That uh, this is what a monastery endeavors to be. It's like, a, uh, obviously, there's, you know, there's always wrinkles and difficulties and uh, so forth. But the, the intention is to create this kind of very fertile and um, very uh, supportive environment for spiritual practice. So that then um, whoever wants to come along um, from the local area or from wherever can come and take and can dwell with that envir- within that environment and... Uh, and make use of the, uh, the atmosphere, the, the tenor of life that is sustained by the resident community. So that within, within uh, most Buddhist countries, you, you know, maybe 1% or less of the people would actually be monastics at any one time. 
and 99% uh, would be um, lay people like yourselves. And then a, per- a lay person might make it their their um, their goal in life, or their make it their their practice to go every day to the monastery. Just making point. every day you go in and you you help out, you do some cooking or cleaning or help with building work or go to meditate, listen to teachings. It might be that you go once a week on the the lunar quarters, which are our observance Sabbath days. It might be that you go kind of every month or every six months. It might be that you you'd hardly ever go at all, but just you're knowing that the the place is there, the monastery is there, and that its life is sustained, uh, and that the, the spiritual practice is going on there. It's something which is tremendously um, uh, supportive and inspiring to you, and that it's a it's an important place to you, even though you uh, you you can't make it to travel there, or you. Um, you don't particularly feel a need to, to listen to teachings or, or meditate in that environment. So that the, the monastery it can, be, can be used in many, many different ways and at different strengths by different people according to disposition and, and uh, what your, your life situation allows. But in, in each case, it's very much the fact that it is your place. It is, it is uh, whoever you are. The, the monastery is your place. Just as a place, you know, somewhere like Spirit Rock, this is your place. It's our place. It's everybody's place. So that living, dwelling within this environment for a 10-day period is really just trying to, um, and this is you know, what, why uh, we've, uh, we've come along and what we hope we'll be able to, to do, is to, uh, to gather together some of the, 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 the factors that make a, the most fertile and supportive um, environment for spiritual transformation uh, for us as, as human beings. So, uh, some of the factors I've mentioned of, of, a, of a monastic life that it's, it's uh, along with being as uh, a place of, of kind of morals, uh, of a spiritual integrity. So, there's no no life. You don't take life. There's no uh, stealing or any kind of and the 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 uh, customary precept on sexual against sexual misconduct is is tightened up to the fact that uh, to the standard of of celibacy so that within the grounds of a monastery there's no kind of, of sexual relations are, are conducted which is not to say that there's anything you know wrong or bad about sex but just that it doesn't happen within this particular area that within this particular place then everyone is endeavoring to function as uh, as sisters as brothers on a on a kind of um, non-sexual uh, manner of communication which um, I, is intended to create a much, much greater social space so that we can be at ease with each other and uh, relate to each other on, on a, a level which is not um, tied up with the, um, the tremendously powerful instinctual um, aspects of um, sexual attraction of, of the kind of game playing that, that, that is so easy for us to get into you know am I in, you know am I attractive uh, or you know she looks nice I wonder what he's up to wonder what <laughs> wonder what uh, they feel about me that these are the powerful and natural instincts that arise in, in human beings uh, with great ease as we're all fully aware but what a monastery is trying to do is not deny that those feelings of, of attraction or interest or, 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 so, or the committed bond between partners is uh, not saying that's invalid or wrong, but just saying, in this place, this is something that we don't act upon. We're not suppressing it or saying it's bad, but just here, we leave that aside. We choose not to act in that, uh, in that way. And so that it creates a, a, um, a pattern of simplicity of relating. Uh, a, a pattern of relating that is is free from the kind of intense emotional charge that comes with with um, that kind of aspect of human life. So also um, a, mon- a monastery environment is trying to create a very simple way of living. So life there is quite life in a monastery is is frugal, is simple. So that uh, there's a um, Say in the standards of living quarters, in the standards of the food, um, 
you uh, try to make yourself um, content with whatever is offered. So whatever whatever room you're given, uh, whatever li- sleeping place you have, then the, the effort is to be content with that. Whatever food is given, whatever food is, is prepared in the kitchen, whether you help out preparing it or not, whatever, whatever is offered, you're training your heart to be content um, with whatever is given, whatever is freely offered. Um, with the... Um, with the standards of, of our simplicity and frugality. And also, as in monastic training, you try and have as few possessions as possible. You know, to, not to be kind of carrying around um, uh, you know, a whole kind of uh, vast complex of things that you need everywhere you go. So that you're, you're learning to, to be robust in this way. So that, um, And it's, it's important to understand that the, the Buddhist approach towards asceticism is explicitly not trying to, to kind of um, make life harder for yourself. In fact, the Buddha said that there's, there's, there's several reasons why people take on ascetic, an ascetic practice or ascetic way of life. If you're doing it just to, to create difficulty for yourself and create pain, um, thinking that's somehow kind of karmically um, purifying, that's, not the, that's the, the wrong motivation. If you're doing it to impress others, um, that's the wrong motivation. Um, if you're um, if you're doing it um, because you think it's somehow meritorious just to be experiencing pain, then that's the wrong reason. <laughs> if you're doing it uh, for anything other than to make life more simple and for ease of living, then it's the wrong reason. The only reason for taking on an ascetic life or ascetic asceticism or, or simpl- these kind of qualities of simplicity and frugality is so that we can learn to live simply, to minimize our needs. So this is, so the whole uh, point of it, what it's pointing to is a quality of freedom. So that, uh, and we know for ourselves, all of us have that experience, you know, the more um, adaptable we are, the less difficulty and struggle that we create. You know, when, when the heart can say, oh, that's okay, I can manage with some of that, or well, I can do without that. That's okay. It doesn't matter. I'm fine. Um, then, how free and how easy life is. And it's when we get really particular. Or oh, I like this. Or I can't stand that. Or I want more of this. Or ooh, I don't like that. Or, or um, you know, I wish you put a bit more garlic in that. Or <laughs> you kind of don't really know how to, you know, how to to make any toast around here. I really have to tell them that my brand of tahini. <laughs> they really should know better in this place. That you know, that's the that's the the the, the fussy mind is is the suffering mind, and that um, uh, so that the the standard that is offered in a monastic training is one of of uh, the heart of gratitude uh, for whatever is offered. So our training as monastics is. Um, to receive with appreciation whatever is offered to us as, by, as food or as, uh, as drink or as medicine. That, uh, to be content with that. Like when, you, when you're ordained, the deal that you cut when you're ordained as a nun or as a monk is that, okay, from this time on, uh, I, will take, uh, I will be content with um, whatever kind of scrap cloth or rags are given to me to make some robes out of, I will be content with that. Whatever food I'm given as alms food, whatever lands in my bowl is good enough. Any kind of a dwelling place, living at the root of a tree, in fact, is the standard that you take. If I have no other dwelling, no other shelter than just living under the root of a tree, that's good enough. And, uh, uh, and then for medicine, whatever kind of, of um, basic natural herbal medicines are available, then I'm, I'll make myself content with that. Whatever is offered in terms of medicine. Actually, if you want the, the straight scoop, the, uh, the um, standard for medicine is fermented urine. If there's no other medicine available except for urine, fine. <laughs> That's good enough. So you, you deliberately set your standard as the lowest possible standard of living. So then everything else is extra. So then what you're doing is, is not, again, not trying to make your life difficult for yourself, but just establishing that um, that kind of uh, 
strength, robustness, that whatever happens, however things go, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm full, whether it's delicious and rich food or whether it's plain and simple, okay, that's good enough. The food is just fuel for my body. If it tastes good, that's fine. If it tastes bad, that, that's fine too. It's like the little notice they have in the kitchen. Our job is to make, deli- our practice is to make delicious food for you and if you don't find it delicious, then that's your practice. <laughs> I think was actually filched from the Lama Foundation. So. But it's a very useful teaching. So, um, we're not going to be trying to kind of torture all of you during this period. Um, but just to, to help create a situation where there is that kind of um, simplicity. And uh, using this not as a kind of um, an obstacle to climb over. Oh, well, we have to kind of do without this or do without that. And what's all this about no supper? It's not, a, it's not an obstacle to climb over. It's not because you know, spirit rock is getting cheap <laughs> or the cooks are getting lazy. But this is actually, the, the whole purpose of it is as a uh, learning to make ourselves adaptable, to free the heart from its neediness and, and recognizing, hey, I can do that. Oh yeah, that's all right, I can do without this. Or yeah, I don't really need that. And the sweetness of heart that comes from that. How, how delicious, how sweet it is when the heart can just be at ease with however things are. And it's that sweetness, this is called the, 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 the sweetness of, of Dhamma. The sweetness of the practice comes with that kind of easefulness and adaptability to circumstance. Also, another aspect um, of the monastic tradition is the whole kind of ceremonial and formal um, quality that uh, that comes with it. You will have noticed that we're not all wearing jeans and t-shirts. And, you know that uh, the whole um, devotional side of the, the uh, of the practice is is not a, a central feature within. Um, traditional monastic practice, but it's it's a very consistent um, feature. So that all of the, the every morning and evening, there's a um, have a period of, of devotional chanting and bowing, and also during during this time, we can give you the um, the approved uh, or the, the sort of standard bowing model, <laughs> the uh, the the standard Theravadan prostration just so that uh, you don't have to be trying to figure it out on your own. Um, but uh, again, this is, this is a, a quality that's not just a sort of um, vestigial organ of, of Asian Buddhism that we just sort of carry, that just kind of carries on like an appendix that has no particular function, but it, we just do it because we do it because we do it. But it too has a very strong um, purpose a significant purpose within spiritual practice. And the, um, the element of, of faith and devotion is uh, not something that you can just conjure up out of, out of thin air, but it's something that we can cultivate that is really feeding the whole emotional sense. It's like a, cultivating our emotional life, not in, just in terms of being towards other human beings, but uh, cultivating uh, wholesome and, and positive emotion, emotional states towards, uh, towards our own spirituality, towards that in the universe which is pure, which is noble, which is true, which is uh, of immense worth. And that the, um, the process of, of chanting, of bowing, is, say, arousing those very positive uh, emotional states of as- spiritual aspiration, um, noble intention and um, the, the, uh, the qualities of rejoicing, of honoring, of, uh, of revering that which, is, uh, that which is truly good and pure. So that it's a, a side of, of Buddhist practice. It does, doesn't get a great deal of attention yeah, a lot of the time because many of us have grown up in spiritual traditions or around spiritual traditions that, that are kind of forcing you to <laughs> do this stuff. You know, singing hymns and going to the synagogue and doing the you know this that and the other and and getting getting scolded or walloped if you <laughs> if you didn't do it right and so we all have this sort of shuddering well not all of us but probably many of us have these 
kind of sh- uh, memories that uh, have an accompanying shudder that go along with them, with the kind of formalities of religious life. But um, I think uh, there's a, a strong sense of of um, when when uh, Theravada Buddhism came into this country um, a lot through the Vipassana teachers, there was a strong sense of not wanting to bring a lot of these Asian customs, all this bowing and chanting and robes and bells and smells and all of that stuff. <laughs> we, we, we don't have to, and, and also, you know, very explicitly when when uh, when this place was started, um, I saw a promotional film that they that they made uh, just to tell a little story. This was at Santa Rosa retreat Ajahn Sumedho was leading back in 1990 and Howard Noodleman who, who passed away a few years ago was the president of Spirit Rock at that time and at the end of the retreat he asked to, to play this little promotional film that was being made for Spirit Rock and letting people know what it was and, and doing some fundraising for the place and so um, in this film you had uh, uh, the beautiful shots of the meadows here and the wildflowers and Jack Cornfield's sonorous voice doing its mellifluous thing in the background, <laughs> saying, you know, the spirit rock, and we aim to be this kind of spiritual center and the teachings of, of the Buddha. And then it cut to uh, uh, some film of, of, of uh, Ajahn Chah's monastery in Thailand, where Jack stayed for a couple of years as a monk, and which is our kind of home monastery. And the whole hall, full of people, kind of bowing and chanting together in a big, bra- you know, big brass Buddha image, and... Everyone going, Yo so bhagava arahang sama sambuto, and bowing down. Jack saying, you know, there's so much of Buddhism is associated with Asian customs and traditions, but we're not going to be doing any of that at Spirit Rock. <laughs> and then went into this little spiel about how, you know, in the West, it's, um, this was something that we wanted to leave behind, and that people really wanted just the, kind of the essential teachings of Vipassana Buddhism. Now, unfortunately, during this retreat, Howard Noodleman had a had major spiritual experience around chanting and bowing. <laughs> so as he saw his own film playing in front of him, he began to writhe. <laughs> it, was, it was very painful to see. He was like, oh no. <laughs> he was suffering deeply, and as soon as the film finished, he was sort of flung himself at Ajahn Smedo's feet, apologizing, I'm terribly sorry, we, we'll, we'll cut it out, we'll re-edit, we'll... <laughs> Because it wasn't until he'd actually uh, been in the uh, um, in a situation where those um, practices were done, and with with Ajahn Sumedha's explanations and, and and in being informed with a whole kind of quality of wisdom and reflection, um, that uh, he hadn't understood how they work or what they were really about. And when when you look at it from the outside, it just seems like a, a lot of empty ritualism. And that you know, I certainly shied away from and didn't want to have anything to do with. Um, you know, one thing when I was uh, seeking a spiritual path, one thing I knew I was absolutely disinterested in was this kind of ridiculous um, uh, rit- ritualistic formalities that these uh, antique religions go in for. That was definitely out. <laughs> and you know, organized religion is bad enough, but these sort of this kind of empty. Uh, pointless mumbling of foreign phrases is com- <laughs> completely out of the question. So, you know, you know that, that way you kind of get drawn to the very things that you reject? <laughs> so I got magnetized to the orthodox end of, a, of, an a- of the most ancient Buddhist tradition. So that with understanding and working with chanting and bowing and the kind of formalities of, of the, the traditional pattern of things, it's good to understand that the, the form is just like the, the, the Ajahn Chah used to de- describe it like the skin of the banana, the banana peel. He said, in most people, and this was talking to a, a Thai audience, was that in most people, they, they, uh, they pick up the banana and then they, they, they take off the peel, they peel the skin off the banana, then they, they eat the peel and throw the banana away. You know, so they spend a, a lot of time kind of bowing nicely and chanting nicely and being, doing all the external forms, but then you know, living their lives in a way which is totally stupid and, uh, and uh, all, you know, taking all the precepts and then you know, walking out from the meditation hall and going out and drinking and, and um, gambling and just kind of carrying on in the same old way. 
so, um, uh, and he could be pretty hilarious about <laughs> about the, you know the way that we do that. But it's true, you know, what we we'll, we'll take the external aspects of something, and it's not just bowing and chanting and so forth, but the, even the, the external aspects of a meditation technique. You know, absolutely scrupulously following the technique to the letter for years and years. You know, doing the technique furiously, hell bent on nibbana, as they say. And uh, and we don't realize that we, you know, we're, we're, just, we're just clinging to the technique. We're clinging to the external form and we're not using it in a wise way. So we're just eating the skin and then, and then wondering why we've got indigestion. And we're still hungry. <laughs> so the point is to, to not just be picking up the skin of it but also to be, to be eating the fruit. So that you take the skin off and then you throw the skin away and you eat the fruit. Which means... That we use the technique, the meditation techniques, the the, um, the ceremonial, devotional, ritual forms, but we use them with a mind of reflective wisdom. We're using when we bow, we bow to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, which is bowing to wisdom. The Buddha is embodiment is the embodiment of wisdom. Dharma is the truth, the the reality of things, the way things actually are. Bowing to Sangha is bowing to that which enables living beings to harmonize. Like Sangha means the unified assembly. So to bow to the Sangha means to bow to that in us which is able to harmonize with other beings rather than the me first, uh, what about me uh, program, which we most often bow to. <laughs> so that... And then with the chanting, it's not just a, the chanting has two elements, one of, a, of devotion and reverence for the Buddha and its teachings and the, the power of wisdom to help transform us, but it's also there's a reflective element of chanting. It's actually learning the teachings. We recite this stuff over and over so that the teachings are there, you know, that when you, you meet with some kind of problem or difficulty, uh, you're struggling with someone, then it's like, Oh, right. Being with what you dislike is suffering. Oh, right. <laughs> the program is working. This is just me being with what I don't like. It hurts. Right. That's what the Buddha said. It happens. If, you don't, if you're with something that you don't like, it hurts. If you're separated from something that you do like, it hurts. Oh, right. So that like recollecting the teachings and having them to hand, the chanting is like having the, your tools close by so that you are able to work with the different aspects of your life as they arise. Successes, failures, praise, criticism, gain, loss, etc., etc. Now, the, uh, the environment of a retreat, the devotional practices and the, the meditation techniques, the routine, um, this is all something that... Um, these are just the forms. This, this is the banana skin, these structures. So it's really up to each one of us to actually take the situation and use it. Um, and the more that we give ourselves to it, then the more we'll get from it. This is just the way things function. And also the whole thing works on an honor system, like the precepts. Even within a monastery, it works completely on an honor system. Like if uh, Tan Sudanta here says, you know, Ajahn Amro, you know, um, why did you come to my 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 kuti, my cabin, and steal that candlestick. You've taken that candlestick of mine. I said, I didn't take a candlestick. He said, well, it's disappeared from my kuti, and, and uh, so-and-so saw you walking down the hill with it, and so, um, yeah, I'm sure you took this candlestick of mine. I said, I didn't take it. And if I, as long as I say I didn't take it, then it becomes, it's the duty of, the, of the, the rest of the community to say, okay, well, if he says he didn't take it, then maybe the, others were, maybe the others were confused, they didn't see what they thought they saw. We'll have to take your word for it. Okay. So that, unless I say, okay, well, you're right, sorry, um, uh, you know, I needed that for something or other, um, please forgive me, I took it on trust. He says, okay, that's fine, no problem. But as long as I don't uh, acknowledge that, then it's a duty of the community to say, okay, well, you don't acknowledge it. Um, we'll have to take your word for it. Now, obviously, I don't want to go into a whole kind of thesis on the, the monastic rule, but um, that's the, the first response that we all have, is to trust each other. 
that um, that you are you trusting the other people are keeping the basic precepts and guidelines of the monastery. So similarly, with a, a retreat like this, when you take the precepts, when you uh, and uh, which we'll finish the evening with, then this is a, it's an honor system. No one's we, we don't have a kind of Dharma police force. <laughs> There are not little cameras buried in your rooms to see if you're kind of snuck in a candy bar or something. It's entirely on an honor system. It's like, if you want to, to, um, not to develop from this retreat, from this living situation, then um, whatever you give to it is exactly proportional to what, what you'll get back from it. So the more that we give our heart to the, the, to the teachings, to the routine, to the whole environment, the more we give ourselves to that, then the more richness that we derive from it. Also, the, um, the last thing I'd like to say is that with uh, the environment, a uh, monastic environment or a retreat environment, there's a strong sense of containment. Right? There's, a, there's a system, there's a form, and, uh, and the, the, um, the simplicity of it, the, uh, the regularity of it, and the whole point of, of living a simple and harmless life, living an honorable life, uh, living a, a life that was based around routine and so forth, is so that we have the simplest possible backdrop. It's like you're creating a, as clear a possible screen against which we see the projections of our whole lifetime of karmic tendencies our loves, our hates, our preferences, our fears, our desires, our, uh, our inspiration, our creativity, our delight, our kind of nebulous mediocrity, <laughs> whatever it might be, by creating this, the, as simple a possible screen, as possible a screen um, for that, then as it's all projected, as the, the days come and go and the different states of mind and feelings appear, then we're able to spot them, to know and to see them as clearly and as directly. Waves of fear, waves of excitement, waves of, of, um, of uh, clarity and brightness and joy, waves of, of nameless terror, of, uh, of uh, aversion and anger. All of that will arise. And it's and it, when that when that arises, particularly the, the the negative or painful stuff, don't think you're getting it wrong. I mean, many of you are old hands, and you, you've been, you know, the, the old warriors will know. <laughs> it's like Ajahn Chah said: uh, when you enter upon spiritual practice, you should expect to experience a great deal of friction and difficulty. That's not a sign that the practice is going wrong. It's a sign that it's, it's working. Because <laughs> what we're doing is we're creating a situation where we can meet all of the stuff that we spend a lifetime and thousands of dollars getting away from. <laughs> Avoiding as, as uh, fully and completely as possible. So it's, we're creating a, a different environment where we say, Welcome, come, all ye. Come and be seen. Come and be known. And because this is the way that we we arrive at the consummation of our potential in uh, as human beings in our life, it's only by really knowing and meeting all of those aspects of our of our nature—the glorious and the beautiful, the mundane and the and the nondescript, and the, the painful, terrifying, profane, and crazy. By meeting them all in the same uh, accommodating heart, then we're able to, to really understand, to transcend, and to be at one with all things. The, um, the fact that this retreat is happening at Halloween, um, being the kind of person that notices these things, and uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the the, the Christian traditions of where Halloween Halloween is not just a kind of random custom about a kind of pumpkin fetish, <laughs> but it's uh, it's the eve of All Hallows Day, which is All Saints Day. This is how I understand it, 
It's the, the, the festival day. It's like the kind of high impact, with the, day, the highest impact spiritual day when the, all of the saints of the Christian church are celebrated and honored. So this is like the, the, uh, the whole uh, artillery battalion is out. Yeah, every spiritual big gun of the, of the, uh, of the list is, is being revered and empowered that, and, and invoked that day. And then, I, as I understand it, the next day after is then All Souls Day. And that's the day when all of the souls who've been waiting in purgatory then get let out of, of purgatory and go up to heaven. You know, each year they kind of stack up. And then you get all of the, you get all the big guns out and, and the combined virtue of all of the saints then is enough to <coughs> open the doors and hoik all of the, uh, the, 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 uh, the souls in purgatory up into to heaven. This is a Christian model. Um, actually, I also found out Purgatory is a skiing resort in Colorado. <laughs> I, was in Dur- I was in Durango a week ago. So. <laughs> Beside the point. But, uh, but it's interesting that it's not just in the Christian tradition, but in, uh, in many other countries, this time of the year, there's a very, very similar festivals. In China, they call it the Ulumbana Festival. Which exactly they have exactly the same tradition where all of the the uh, the the beings who are stuck down in the lower realms, then the people perform large kind of uh, ceremonies and um, acts of, of generosity and uh, and dedicate all the virtue, the blessings of those those uh, those acts, and, um, like retreats or chanting mantras or making offerings. They dedicate to those all the beings who are stuck in the lower realms to, to again lift them out of those realms up into the heavenly domains. Also, it's actually the biggest festival of the year in Cambodia. Um, the, this the same festival it has a different name, but it's a, a, um, a southern Buddhist festival. Again, for exactly the same purpose. And what exactly is the relationship between the, the turning of the year and the coming of the autumn and the, 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 the diminu- diminution of the light? And the, the releasing of the, the beings, I'm not, I'm not absolutely sure. It's an interesting image to play with. But it's, it's significant that at this time of the year, there's, there's many, many different um, folk traditions that talk of this process. And just as I was saying about the, the, the auspicious chanting, you can either look at it as an external event, you know, the real angels and guardian deities and so forth, or you can look at it internally. That the the whole kind of Halloween, All Hallows, All Souls Day process is um, to do with com- coalescing all of our virtuous qualities by drawing together all of our virtues and our, our spiritual skills. By compounding that, we then create an environment where the uh, the ghosts and the strugglers. And uh, the, the the beings in deprivation and and uh, difficulty can be released, which is like releasing our anger, releasing our fears, releasing our, our obsessive thoughts and unre- unrequited passions. This is these are the these are the, the beings in purgatory. All of our that stuff that we don't like. There's only a couple of people that will talk about it with <laughs> that stuff, or nobody that will talk about it with that we don't even want to think about ourselves. That stuff. It's a process of, of, of gathering that together and helping that to be released. The, uh, the reason why Halloween is the kind of witching night is because it's like the last chance they've got to, to, uh, to, to make mischief. <laughs> the, uh, the, of the mischief makers and the, the malevolent spirits is the last chance to, to cause trouble before you get this kind of this uh, big um, uh, goodness festival happening. So it's the, the last, ta- last chance to stir up a lot of trouble and make, uh, make difficulties for people. So these are just uh, the themes I like to put forth at the beginning of this time. Um, there'll be plenty of other uh, Dharma talks and teachings, and if the evening is wearing on. Also, I'd like to invite Sister Tanasanti to say a, a few words. She has just arrived from her travels from, from England, and uh, 
and uh, a week or so ago, she and Sister Ananda Bodhi flew in about a week ago. So um, she asked to just say a few words this evening, but we'll be taking it in turns as the, the retreat proceeds to, to lead things. And then at the end of the evening, we'll, we'll formally take the eight precepts together. So I'll just hand it over to you, Sister. There's a, 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 nice, a nice feeling of fullness being here. Um, I, I grew up in this, in this Vipassana scene that Ajahn Amaro so affectionately speaks of. I was born in California, and the, the first ten years of having any contact with Dhamma was very much in, the, in, in these Vipassana retreats that this, this, um, this video was describing. And um, I came to uh, Spirit Rock, the land, when there was the what's affectionately known as the barbecue, which was when the the uh, the first the first opening celebration of the land where the, the the land caught on fire because of somebody's catalytic converter. So that was the the first the first happening. And then throughout the years of the various different um, different um, buildings and fundraisers and things like that, I was just had an ear open as my own life was taking me to Asia and, and then taking me to, uh, to England and a clear interest in, in living this monastic life. And I, I remember, it, I, hadn't, I hadn't remembered until I just came back here that when I went to Asia, I took a, a camera with me and took a number of slides and when I came back I showed a few, sh- a few slideshows and one of the last things that I did before I went to England and, and to, uh, to take novice vows was I showed a, a slideshow at the university campus and about my journey in Asia. And it was just a kind of a, an open thing with and free will donations, but the donations were sent to Spirit Rock to help support the, the building projects here. So from the early 80s, I was aware of the, the building of this and, and kind of keeping an eye on. And then... I was here two years ago, but to come back and see how much has how much work has happened, and the, the enormous care that has taken place to to make a, a, a lovely and supportive environment, and the, the sense of aesthetics, and the you know the light being soft and and the bright and, and soft, and bright. bright and soft, and you know just the, the way the outside is lit up, and the and the body leaves, and just this beautiful, lovely environment, and it gives me. I know there's a sense of, of circle, of uh, coming back to a place where uh, I, I kind of I began in, in my Dhamma beginnings in, in Santa Cruz and spent many years at the Angelus Center in Santa Rosa. And, and I was one of the people who there was one of the blessing, beginning blessing festivals, to go up and tie a, a blessing on a tree. And I remember, I don't remember exactly what I said, but something about coming home here that this is a place for people to come home. And so for me, there's a sense of, of fullness, a sense of joy of being able to be here and to share this time together and to, to, um, to, ex- to explore. Uh, it's an uncharted time of what will happen, but just to use the teachings and the, and the various contexts as a way to, to, to come into our presence, to come into connection with, with our bodies, with what we actually feel, to allow the mind to settle and to to feel some sense of stillness and uh, and then um, and in that stillness and in that collectedness to, to then to bring about a sense of the presence of just knowing of bearing witness to of opening up and experiencing things as they are and so um, there'll be plenty of times to go into the themes more and discussions more but one of the things I was just thinking of before uh, before coming into this uh, hall this evening was, you know, in, in, in Buddhism there's often a, a, a description of emptiness. Uh, emptiness is the innate sense of, of who we actually are. And yet my experience of, of realizing emptiness is actually uh, fullness, coming into a sense of fullness, into a sense of, 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 of presence and connectedness and allowing the totality of what it is to be human. So in our, on our um, diligence and our um, staying with the present moment and our connectedness to body and to experiences of mind where some stillness is developed, then to use that stillness and just bear witness to things as they arise, things as they are, 
to experience the sense of fullness, of wholeness, of, of what it is actually to be human. And of course, the journey isn't always so simple. And, and Ajahnama was talking quite, quite a lot, and quite, uh, it's quite good, actually, to bring up the fact that some people have this idea that you go on a meditation retreat and it's actually blissful or peaceful. And for some rare beings, occasionally, every once in a rare moon, that actually is the experience. And for other people, it's actually a mixture of, of all kinds of things. So, so the, the sense of presence, of, of coming into, into connection with, and then the, the ability to be present with whatever it is that arises. <coughs> and to trust that. To trust that just knowing things as they are is actually where our practice is. So I feel a sense of fullness and a sense of circle, a sense of, of completion somehow to, to be here tonight with all of you. Many new people I don't know, some old friends who I recognize. And looking forward just to these 10 days to see what, uh, what evolves, what happens, and uh, to see the, the way the Dhamma unfolds. So uh, it's a beginning. And, uh, and it, it, it's, it's very good to begin things in the right way. And so to begin with the auspiciousness of chanting and blessings, and to begin with the clarity of precepts, of just establishing a container that, that actually is something we can trust, to begin with a clear determination to be present, to be upright, to be here, and then in that, those clear beginnings, then we have a, a container where we can see things as they unfold. So, it's a, uh, a journey. And we see what kind of goblins come out of the closet, kind of angels we will encounter, the ordinariness of, of a day, the delight of a day, and just uh, relax into this time together. So... Uh,